You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. Hi there, I'm Renee Jones and you're listening to the first episode of Aspie's podcast, Policy, Guns and Money. Coming up later on the show, is free speech under attack? Maddie and Jackie investigate free speech panic. But first we'll hear from our two grumpy strategists. Michael and Marcus from our Defence and Strategy program unpack the latest Osmin meeting. So Marcus, it's a great time to be having this chat because um, we had the Australia-US ministerial meeting, Osmin, uh, between uh, the counterpart US Defence and Foreign Ministers. So that's Secretary of State Pompeo, uh, Secretary of Defence Mattis, Defence Minister Payne and Foreign Minister uh, Bishop meeting in San Francisco. Now, that's on the back of the G7 meetings and the NATO uh, meeting and the Helsinki summit between uh, Putin and Trump. So I think it's a fascinating time to talk. Um, Mm -hmm. But um, at the same time, it's a kind of depressing time to talk. Well, I guess you could say that the Osmin was not as big a train wreck as some of the Trump meetings in Europe, but you still seem to be um, a little disappointed with what came out of Osmin. Yeah, well, look, I'm a real aficionado of the Australia-US alliance, and I've worked on it for a long time, and I've seen the direct benefits to Australian security out of it, so I am a fan. Uh, but when I looked at the outcomes, and I looked at that 19 19- Um, job list that uh, our four leaders of of our two nations, defence and foreign policy establishments put out, I must admit, I I was a little bored. Uh, And I think that's a really bad test. And if if I was bored, then people that are not aficionados certainly would have been. So, you know, my line on this is, uh, if the Alliance was a car, it had a routine service. You know, it's 100,000 kilometres service. Uh, but what I was really hoping for out of Osmin was more uh, if the alliance was a car, then it was a case of pimp my ride. We were going to see something exciting and different uh, that really set a future agenda, and we didn't see that. Mm-hmm. Now, but just recently you described the US alliance structure with its partners in the Asia-Pacific as, as a donut, meaning it was pretty empty in the middle, and the US had gone missing. So which is it? Is, is the US, has the US gone missing or should, should we be doubling down on the relationship? Well, there's two elements there. So uh, the US has historically run an alliance system, a global alliance system, with it as the hub and a bunch of alliance partners, including Australia, as, uh, as spokes, so a hub and spoke model. But under the Trump America First model, um, America's acting in a unilateral way. So it's not orchestrating its alliance partners. And so there's a missing American leadership of the alliance uh, relationships. So that's the donut. Uh, There's no hub now. It's all rim or donut. Now, what does that mean for Australia? Well, I think Peter Jennings, uh, the executive director of ASPE, has had some of the most interesting things to say when he's talked about, is it time for a plan B? Um, And what he said there, Uh, deals directly with this. It says, so if American leadership around security in our region is not going to be as strong, what does Australia need to do? Well, step one, we need to maintain access to US high technology and share intelligence. 
those things are fundamental force multipliers for Australia. So in a, in a sense, you seem to be saying plan A and plan B are not are completely contradictory. That if we were to pursue some uh, lines of thought on plan B, we still wouldn't completely walk away from plan A. Well, not unless we want to have a much larger population, which we don't have, and spend a lot more of our national wealth on defence, which uh, for many years the taxpayer has not supported. So we'd need to spend a lot more on GDP. Now, you've done some work. If Australia were to move from spending 2% of GDP on defence, which is the current government's target, to let's say 3%, how much more money would that require from the taxpayer and deliver to invest in defence? Well, if we grew at a steady rate over the next 10 years from 2% to 3%, that would result in defence getting an extra $122 billion. Now, that's a lot of money. That's, you know, joint strike fighters probably around $15 billion. So it's about eight times more money than the joint strike fighter project is costing us to give an example. So it would make a real capability difference. But one of the things I noticed about Peter's list of things to explore as Plan B, it's not just about things to buy, but it's also about things to do, such as being more active in the Pacific or working more closely with countries like uh, Indonesia. And I was just wondering, are there any uh, lines of activity that you think are most promising in exploring Plan B? Well, I think so. I think moving away from these big, complex, integrated manned platforms, uh, you know, like, like ships, aircraft, submarines. You know, the term of art uh, is these are high-value, low-volume assets, which means they're very expensive, they're very useful, but you've only got them in tiny numbers. Now, technological surprise is part of the history of warfare. If you've got very expensive things in small numbers that you can't afford to lose, but the risk of technological surprise is increasing, as it is with the rise of China as a technological power, then maybe that's a bad idea. So part of Peter's plan B was supercharging access to new technologies and the cheap consumable kind of system instead of these big, complex, integrated manned platforms. He suggested forming an Australian DARPA, which is uh, the US Advanced Research Agency, which has had a track record of getting hold of new technologies and getting them into the hands of the military fast. Yeah, as Aspie's previously noted, Defence only spends about half of 1% of its budget on its technological innovation programs. And even that small amount of money seems to be producing uh, results already. So it seems like increasing that uh, you know, could result in some quick wins uh, pretty quickly without distorting the overall budget. So I, I would agree that's definitely something to explore. Well, I'm reminded of something that a former head of the Defence Material Organisation, Mick Roach, used to always say, had the Secretary of the Department would say to him, hey, Mick, I need you to spend $5 million more on this. You've got a big budget, so make it available. And Mick would always say, I've got a big budget, Secretary, but my big budget is made up of a lot of smaller budgets. So those numbers are all committed. What would you like me to stop? So... From your defence economic uh, hat, what would you trim or stop to to double the size of innovation in defence? Well, that's always the question, isn't it? That if you can only spend every dollar once, defence is really, really bad at uh, getting rid of old capabilities. You look back in history and you think, what have we divested? 
in the recent past and you could think of the aircraft carrier back in the 80s and since then we haven't really gotten rid of anything so it is a a pretty um a weak point i think in our strategic planning let me press you where would you make room well you know i've I've laid my cards on the table before that i think um you know submarines are going to cost us an awful lot of money and they're going to take a long time to arrive. We need to do something sooner. So while I wouldn't cancel the submarine project, that would be fairly dramatic. I think taking some of that money, some of the shipbuilding money, and uh, investing in innovative technologies, I think, is probably going to result in a, a, a quicker capability dividend. I think you're right. I think if you think about $35 billion for nine frigates and what we now hear is $200 billion uh, for the, for twelve future submarines, which includes an estimate of their operating cost, uh, I think doubling the size of the innovation budget uh, would be doable without that even being noticed in those big programs. So that's an obvious thing to do. Peter, in his Plan B, also talked about Australia lifting its game in the South Pacific, saying yep. either Australia lifts its game or it loses the South Pacific. Yeah, and I think, you know, the recent announcement of a US-Japanese-Australian investment bank is potentially a good first step there, though there's not been a lot of details around how that's going to work. But what what I would say is that any Australian investment in the South Pacific, it needs to really distinguish itself, sort of brand itself differently from the Chinese model of very big, top-down, big uh, investment infrastructure projects such as stadiums and big roads and big ports as we've seen in Vanuatu and I think it needs to be much more grass level uh, you know working directly with the people of the South Pacific so whether it's microfinancing or helping local communities I think um, whichever approach we attack we take, it needs to work at that kind of level to show how our approach is fundamentally different from the Chinese one. I think you're right, but I think there's some defence work there too. Like Peter pointed out, a more um, direct Navy presence. You know, it's great to give them more capable patrol boats of their own that Australia pays for and helps operate, but a presence, a standing presence of the Royal Australian Navy just makes a lot of sense. Maybe we can use some of those fantastic new wharves that the Chinese are building. (laughs) Well, that would be kind of an irony if uh, an Australian offshore patrol vessel, you know, was based out of... uh, a Chinese port in Vanuatu. But I do think the new OPVs that we're getting are the perfect capability to deploy into the South Pacific and work with the South Pacific nations, improving their capability and waving an Australian flag there to show that we are a long-term partner. Yeah, so I think this is the start of sketching out ideas about pimping our ride, but I really think it's a time for a, a future agenda and an ambitious agenda, both for Australia but for the Alliance Partnership. Thanks for the talk, Marcus. Thank you, Michael. Moving on to two less grumpy strategists now, we have Maddie and Jackie looking at whether free speech is under attack. Welcome to the first iteration of the podcast, Jackie. How are you feeling? I'm very excited. How are you? Yeah, no, it's just exciting stuff. So let's get right into it. What are some awesome, interesting long reads you've come across this week, Jackie? Well, seeing I'm the expert of long reads at Aspie, um, I actually came across one. Last Thursday, The Guardian, in its long read section, uh, published a very interesting article titled The Free Speech Panic by William Davies. And um, it's a really interesting piece going into a debate that we've been witnessing for a couple of years now of increasingly having opposing opinions 
from time to time also quite radical opposing opinions um but yeah he goes into it and how we can deal with that what he makes his most important point about is that he criticizes the right and the conservative side of things that they claim you know these days is basically the end of free speech um, they criticize always that everything they say is being censored they can't express themselves freely it is a whole piece summarized really well in one sentence the claim that free speech is under attack is often a mask for other political frustrations and fears so he pinpoints that you know there's this claim but actually maybe there's a lot more coming with it yeah there's a lot more going on underneath the surface you know that's that's interesting and it actually reminds me of this awesome podcast I was listening to the other day, um, the Ezra Klein show. Don't know if you guys have heard of it, but it's great. Um, and Ezra Klein sat down with Arthur Brooks, who's the president of the American Enterprise Institute. Hmm, which, interesting. Interestingly, yeah, it's a quite a conservative think tank um, operating out of the US. Um, and they just had the title of the, this episode was called How to Disagree Better. Which is, uh-huh. yeah, Very important. In, yeah, links in well with your piece. Um, and they just had this fascinating discussion on how people of opposing ideologies can disagree better. Um, and Brooks has done some really awesome research in this area, and he's launching his own podcast that's all about the art and practice of disagreeing. Um, timely? Yeah, very timely. Very, very timely. <laughs> and it just sort of, what it's really getting at is, you know, and it's the same as what I think this Guardian piece that you mentioned is getting at. And you know, the idea being that society's issue with discourse and our issue with free speech isn't that we are, you know, it's not that we're disagreeing too much. It's just that we've forgotten how to disagree well, you know. So it's about like how do we, how can we encourage arguments that are actually productive, you know. And and one piece, one sort of, sorry, one line from that Guardian piece that really kind of, you know, stood out to me that, you know, in, in re-listening to this podcast was when, You know, Davies um, claims that there's this narrative being put forward by conservative movements in the UK and the US. An entire generation of millennials is leaving university and entering the workforce without the resilience to cope with disagreement. And that's quite a stark claim to make, you know. It is, it is. Um, So basically the whole issue we're facing is creating conditions that resolve disagreement and differences between us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's sort of that question of who do we sort of, brings in this question of who do we give a platform to yeah exactly and, the whole no platforming debate yeah which you know you know perhaps um i don't know if you've if you've seen in the news but i was home in brisbane over the weekend and the organizers of the brisbane writers festival have um come under quite a bit of fire actually. Oh, how come? well they've been accused of attacking free speech because they disinvited jermaine greer and bob carr um to the festival you know and and the organisers have come out and said that, you know, this has happened because they were, quote, trying to find a balance within the program. Um, but, you know, it's not the first time something like this has happened. And it really calls into question those ideas that we've just been chatting about with the podcast and that Guardian piece on, you know, how do we teach people to disagree in like a, in a productive manner? and maintain- Yeah, and civilised manner, yeah, especially. Absolutely. This reminds me, um, a friend back home in Germany, she's a political consultant, but also a blogger. And for the past two years, she's been fighting with a young guy who's a member of the AFD, so the alternative for Germany, this right-wing extremist party, you can say, actually, which is also in parliament now in Germany. And yeah, so they had all these debates online going on, even spoke on the phone every now and then, disagreed on everything. She's a passionate social democrat, has a migratory background, 
obviously a woman, you know, she ticks a lot of boxes of what hardcore AFT, AFD people oppose. Anyway, he was coming up to Berlin with a group of young men who are all members of the youth organisation of the AFD and proposed to her to meet up uh, for a couple of drinks and actually talk to each other. And at first she was a bit sceptical, but then she agreed to do it and she published about it. Um, and she got a lot of backlash, which oh I find is not very helpful because she actually agreed to sit down with people where she knew what was coming, where there, she knew there was going to be a lot of disagreement, um, you know, potentially fighting, yelling. And yeah, it was all there, but it st- still remained in a civilized manner. They went two nights in a row for some drinks and spoke about all sorts of different stuff from political opinions, social issues and so on. And she said, not only did they disagree, but also among themselves, they disagreed so much. But yeah, summarizing all of that, she said, look, I I did what everyone says. I seek more dialogue to yeah. disagree better. Exactly. I think which was a very uh, brave thing she did no, and was for really sure. good for, for her to publish. Yeah, yeah, no, I look forward to reading that. Well, you will have to translate it. That's okay. In German. <laughs> um, so... Speaking of the continent, the European continent, um, let's move on to international politics. Let's do that. Yeah, so um, scrolling through my Facebook and Twitter feed, which I do every day. As we all do. Yes. (laughs) There's been a lot coming up, Jackie, on Poland. Can you please explain to me what is happening in Poland? I shall do. Um, So what's been happening in Poland over the past week is that we've seen, again, demonstrations across the entire country, which has been a pattern over the past 12 months. People going out in the street, voicing their disagreement with what the ruling party has been doing over the past year or so, trying um, to rebuild the legislative system, changing uh, changing laws, uh, changing how the courts are being manned. And yeah, so last week, the Polish president, Andrzej Duda, signed into law a bill that basically gives the ruling party the opportunity to pick the people they want to see on the courts. And so this whole thing is basically undermining the rule of law and the European Union already started an infringement procedure and so on. So yeah, it's a bit complicated, but it's been a long process. It's very sad to witness this from far away. I bet, because you spent a bit of time in Poland. Yes, yes. So, um, but for everyone who's not really across it, I can recommend a page that came out in the New Yorker earlier this week, which is titled, Is Poland Retreating from Democracy? Written by Elizabeth Zorowski. Uh, summarizes it really, really well. So, yeah, um, it's the first piece I would suggest to get a good idea of what's happening. Oh, great. I'll have a read of that. And also for listeners, we'll provide links to all this stuff as well. That's a pretty ominous situation, Jackie. Yeah, so I feel so too. So let's try to end our part in this podcast with a high. So, Maddie, please tell me, have you anything positive it's recently? It's rare I do, but this week I did. Um, I'm loving the news that's come out of New Zealand this past week. Their parliament over there has just passed new legislation which um, grants victims of domestic violence 10 days of paid leave, which is amazing. It is, it is. Kudos to Wellington indeed. Um, I have to say, though, um, I don't know if I was the only one, but... Maybe there are more people out there that while scrolling and seeing the news, I found some of the titles, some articles had a bit conflicting because they said New Zealand passes leave for domestic violence victims. And at first I was 
shocked because it was like, why would people, why would we want people to stay home hiding away, you know, basically until the bruise is healed and then they can go back to to work. But obviously once I clicked on it and got familiar with all the details, I realized it's actually a really good thing, you know, allowing people to find a new house, um, getting away from the abusive partner um, or the abusive situation. Those things take time, you know. It does, it does. A certain Um, amount of leave. Yeah, and I think New Zealand being one of the highest domestic violence states in the developed world, found it actually really shocking to see that. So I think they've done really well, 10 days, paid leave. And we can only hope that um, more countries are following suit. Yes, Hopefully Australia won't be far behind bringing in something similar. That would be great. Yep, well, and I guess that's a wrap for us for today. Good chat, Jackie. Yes, thanks, Maddie. Finally, Anne and Tom from our cyber team looking at the latest news in the cyber world. Tom, uh, the uh, Chinese tech company Huawei's bid for Australia's 5G network has been headlining the cyber news recently. What's the latest nationally and internationally in that? Well, the last thing I heard is that Robert Hannigan, I think, who was head of GCHQ and another ex-SIS, Secret Intelligence Service guy, Nigel Inkster, were asked about their opinions. And, And they basically broke it down into, if you have Huawei, you get access to really good technology, but you have to deal with the problem of having Huawei. And if you don't have Huawei, then you don't have that technology and you fall behind. So they framed it as a choice between being involved and running a risk or not being involved at all and running a different kind of risk. So there's nothing really wrong with that framing of that, art- that, that, that argument. I just think that we would it's a good time to draw a line in the sand and say to Chinese lawmakers who've... who've who have an intelligence law that obligates Huawei to assist or, and Huawei personnel, that that's not the kind of law we want in a world with global supply chains. On laws, I suppose another sort of another cyber news story has been the My Health record um, and the sort of backlash from the community about that. And today we've learnt that the government has backed down uh, on some of the provisions that they had for My Health record. I'm interested in that as well. I think under legislation... Currently, agencies such as police can have access to that information and people are being asked to opt out rather than, you know, they'll have a record created regardless. And uh, so the government's now decided that they will change the legislation. They haven't told us when that will occur, so people still are a little bit unsure about whether they should uh, opt out. But other issues are around things like how long they keep the data for, who has access to that data... Yeah, so I'm a I'm an inveterate optimist. So some years ago, I actually got a My Health record, and now I'm starting to regret it. So I was at a cybersecurity conference the other day, and not a single person I talked to is keen to, well, they're all going to opt out, and I'm thinking I should too now. So one of the things I've come across um, is that there's a really large list of software that has access to My Health records. And I'm not convinced that any of them have gone through any security testing whatsoever. And you were telling me about personal injury lawyers? Yes. Well, I mean, I mean, I think the issue for that sort of stuff is that it, anyone can have legally have access to some of this information already. Um, so how, do, how are we assured? The public hasn't been told really any information about what's being done with their information. 
Um, there's been no communication strategies around that. And I do think that the other area of whether it's secure or not is the thing that's got me concerned and which I think is, is in a lot of the news. And that's about how secure is government information. And we already know that the Australian National Audit Office, you know, has already done no a number of audits and they've already said that compliance for cyber and for information security is reasonably low across that sector. So I think there are a whole heap of things wrong with the My Health record and no wonder it's in the in the cyber news. Yeah, I think it's it's all bad news. <laughs> so tell me about Facebook. Well, apparently Facebook have uh, discovered through their own investigation that, you know, they've... Uh, uh, there's been an influence campaign started back up again and that they've taken down 32 pages, uh, possibly the Russians, but they haven't sort of indicated who it is, but it's very similar uh, to what was what occurred during the, the national election in 2016. So, so, so do you think Facebook's just trying to get ahead of this issue to avoid any sort of possible regulation? I think they're trying to do whatever they can to, to appease whoever they can, but also... Um, so that they don't have as many controls put on them. So it is like any business, if you can self-regulate and, and do it yourself rather than be told to do it or be required to do it by a law or government, then that's always a better strategy. And I think that's where, that's where Facebook is heading. But it is a concern, I think, to Australia in that we need to think about you know, how, how vulnerable we are to that sort of influencing campaign. We haven't seen anything like it here, but it's only a matter of time. We're a democratic country like the US. Uh, we are an ally of the US, so we might be a target for that sort of campaign. What's, what's your view on that? So I think um, Australia would be stupid to think that we, we're, we're immune. We're, we have this sense that we're in the little backwater that no one ever cares about, but I think that's just not true. Uh, adversaries can be very opportunist, opportunistic and, and just seize, seize options and mm. places where they can get an advantage. I did see that in the States, Senator Mark Warner has released a paper suggesting about 14, 15 different policy initiatives that could be made that range from requiring bots to be identified um, to all sorts of other things. So that paper is on my to-do to read list. I haven't got there yet, though. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Anne. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back in two weeks' time.